What do you need? Uh, maybe to lose your coat. Uh, maybe a, a stronger AC system this morning. What do, what do you really need? Uh, are you here this morning because, because you're in need? If you were in the presence of someone who could, who could give you what you needed the most, would you even know what to ask for? Do you feel like you already have maybe everything that you need? Whether you're here this morning feeling content or feeling needy, what you need to know is that the Lord is near, that He is able to save, that He sees us in our obscurity, and that He cares. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from 2 Kings chapter 4. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, beginning on page 309. 309. Kings, as a whole, is a book which explains the division, decline, and destitution of the people of God. Due to the disobedience and sin of the people of God and really her kings... The people of God are deported, they're they're exiled, they're removed from the promised land of Canaan. And as we've often reflected, these books, 1st and 2nd Kings, they were originally one book with one message, which is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. In our our last few studies, the, the prominence of this hope, the hope for a future and final king, has has somewhat faded from view as we've had to take a good long look at Israel's sin. But Israel's sin, remember, is the the very reason we need a different king than, than any of the kings that we meet in the book of Kings. We need a king who will save God's people from their sins, not not encourage the sins of the people and not participate and not lead in sinning, but a king who will save God's people from their sins. Through the ministries of the prophets Elijah and now Elisha, we've seen these prophets expose the disobedience and sin of the people of God. Last week we saw in 2 Kings chapters 2 and 3, we saw a transition of the one holding the office, holding the prophetic office, as Elijah was miraculously taken up into heaven. And Elijah... Uh, sorry, Elijah was taken up and Elisha remained on earth. Elisha's authority as the successor to Elijah, his authority was validated as he spoke Yahweh's word of pardon and Yahweh's word of punishment. And here in 2 Kings chapter 4, we'll continue to see confirmation that Elisha is Yahweh's authorized prophet. If you recall, Elisha, he he requested a double portion of Elijah's spirit just before Elijah's departure. And in chapter 4, we'll continue to see that Elisha received that that double portion through a series of miracles that are really going to continue on through chapter 6. Through a series of miracles, Elisha is confirmed as Elijah's successor. He, He actually performs the kinds of miracles that Elijah performed. As Elisha carries out a miraculous ministry, we're reminded of God's character. 
As much as we study and learn from these characters in the book of Kings, whether they be prophets or kings themselves, we must remember that the main character in the book is God Himself. That's who this book is really about. So here, through the ministry of Elisha, we learn that our God is the kind of God who helps the helpless. And that He is the kind of God who delivers people from death. These two ideas, they're going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. So just two points this morning. God helps the helpless, and God delivers from death. Let's turn now and consider our first point. God helps the helpless. And as we do, let's read 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1-7. to Follow along as I read 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1-7. to Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take away my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few then go in and shut the door behind you yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels and when one is full set it aside so she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons and she poured as she poured they brought vessels to her when the vessels were full she said to her son bring me another vessel and he said to her There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your son can live on the rest. God helps the helpless. He he doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps the helpless. This woman was utterly helpless, wasn't she? Here is a woman who's bereft of her husband, And before too long, if something dramatic does not happen, she will be bereft of her sons. Now, in the ancient Near East, women were among the most vulnerable in society. Often they were totally dependent upon the men in their lives for providing for their living, whether that be a father, a husband, or any male heirs. This woman's father is out of the picture. He gave her away in marriage. This woman's husband is out of the picture. The Lord took him away through death. And now the creditors are about to take this woman's sons out of the picture. I feel particularly drawn to the description of this woman as she is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets. So in today's language, perhaps we could think of her as kind of a pastor's wife. Uh, I have a special connection with one of those. Uh, but, But this woman has lost her husband. And this story is not about, it's not about how pastors need to be good stewards in order to care for their wives after they're gone, though that is a wise thing to do, a thing that should be done, we need to remember that prophets at this day and age in Israel, they were a despised group of servants. Some of them had to hide in caves and be fed scraps. It's unlikely that any faithful servant of Yahweh in this time would have had much to sustain his wife and children to begin with. A series of difficult providences has befallen this woman. But notice what this widow presents to Elijah. She identifies herself, 
her husband as a, a servant of Elisha. It's almost as, as if she says, hey, look, man, he was one of your men. And, and more to the point, her husband feared the Lord. So few feared the Lord in that day. In this context, this kind of has an undertone to it, doesn't it? There's almost a, a, a questioning of God's providence. Something like, how is it? Is this, is this how God cares for the faithful? Have you ever been faithful? Have you ever found yourself asking a question like that when facing a, a hard providence? Have you ever thought to yourself, Lord, I've been faithful. Why are you allowing this to happen? Notice that this woman has her head on straight. What does she do with her problem? She brings it to the Lord. That the past several chapters have, have demonstrated a close connection between Elisha's ministry and the ministry of the Lord himself. Elisha speaks Yahweh's word and acts on Yahweh's behalf. This woman comes to the Lord through Elisha, his servant. And we too may bring our burdens to our great prophet in prayer. As we'll sing tonight in the evening service, are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This is what the faith of the helpless looks like. This is what it looks like to have your head on straight in the midst of trials. We bring our troubles and our helplessness to the one who can help. This was the Lord Jesus' invitation to us in Matthew chapter 11, 28. He said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come to him. This woman is eager to bring her burdens to the Lord. And Elisha, as we see here, he's eager to help. Here, Elisha mirrors the heart of our God to us. Right? We too can be ready and eager to help. Our God is ready and eager to help. And we can have a personal ministry of being ready and eager to help. Let's remember that when our brothers and sisters bring their burdens to us, we too can reflect God's heart of being eager to help and certainly helping by bringing those matters to the Lord in prayer. We're going to bring a number of matters to the Lord in prayer tonight in our evening service. And let me just encourage you, members of, of Arlington Baptist, if there's something that you think that we should be praying about, bringing to the Lord in prayer, a burden that we have as a congregation, do come and speak to me or one of the elders about that. We want to bring that before the Lord. Elisha, you see there in verse 2, he asks two questions back to back. He wants to know what he can do for this dear sister in the Lord. And he is clearly trying to practically think about how he can help her. But her answer reveals that she's destitute, completely destitute. The fact that she spots a jar of oil in her house does not reveal that she has something to work with. No, it reveals that she has nothing to work with. She has nothing of value. She has one measly, minuscule jar of oil. And the word for jar here indicates it, that it's actually a small jar. It would be better to describe it as a, as a flask. And did you see what Elisha told her to do in verse 3? Told her, go and borrow some vessels from neighbors. And we read those words there, not too few. At the end of the verse, you see those words at the end of the verse? We need to understand that Elisha is not only saying, like, get a lot of them. But he's actually saying, get big ones. 
the, the Hebrew has undertones of, of vessels of a large size that Elisha is calling for. So imagine what he's asking her to do. Pour this small flask into a large vessel. Elisha, he continues his instructions, exhorting this woman to pour out the oil into these large vessels. Where? Did you notice where? It's, it's in secret. It's with the, with the doors closed. She's to do this behind closed doors. Does, does that surprise you? you know, so often we think of miracles as these giant public spectacles. And very often they are. But sometimes they happen behind closed doors. Sometimes the miracles are, are small and for particular persons. This miracle seems to be for this widow and her two sons. They needed to know that they are, that though they were now without their husband and father, in the words of Isaiah chapter 54 verse 4, the Lord your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. This woman and her sons needed to know that Yahweh is who the psalmist declares him to be. So we read this in Psalm 68 verse 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. You see the Lord, He's watching over. He's watching out for His loved ones. And, and did, you, did it jump out to you that this woman and her sons are nameless? They're nameless. This is not a family of great consequence, at least not in the eyes of the world. In the eyes of God, that's a different matter altogether, I think. Contrary to popular belief, wealth is no indicator of God's favor and love. God sees their destitution, their desperation, their grief, their poverty, and He moves to act. This woman, she obeys the word of Elisha, and God miraculously provides enough oil for them to pay their debts and to live. And there's another thing that we can learn from this, dear sister. Obey the word of the Lord. Obey all the way, right away, and with a heart full of faith. This woman stood as a sterling example to those who first read this book. The people of God languishing in exile, those who first received this book of Kings, they would have felt forgotten and destitute. They weren't merely in danger of being dragged off by creditors. They actually had been dragged off by more powerful nations. And as they read this story of Elisha, the widow, and her sons, they could have taken comfort that God does not forget His people. They could have drawn comfort that God hears the cries of the widow and He acts for her good. They too were not forgotten. But what about you? I wonder if you can identify with this woman. Perhaps you feel as though you're, you're just another unnoticed cog, right, being spun around in this world, this life. Maybe you feel unnoticed and as though God does not care about your difficulties. Like the people of God in exile so long ago, let this spotlight on this nameless widow and her sons encourage you. A believer in exile. That's who you are, Christian. You're a believer in exile, waiting for God's promised King to come. Remember that He sees. God hears your cries and He can help. 
If you belong to Jesus Christ, then you need to know that you are not nameless to our Father in heaven. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 3? Jesus said, the sheep hear His voice, and He calls His own sheep by name, and He leads them out. He's going to lead us out of exile. Jesus, He knows you by name. He knows your needs. Our God feeds the ravens, and you are of much more value. As I hinted at earlier, part of the reason that this miracle is recorded is to continue to confirm that Elisha has received a double portion of the spirit of the prophet who preceded him, Elijah. This account contains numerous parallels to Elijah performed in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. Here, Elisha is identified as a man of God. Occurs right there early on. Just as Elisha, Elijah, was called a man of God in his miracle at Zarephath. Similar to the account of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, the Lord makes something out of nothing, doesn't He? With Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, He used a jar of oil and a little flour to provide food for the widow and her son. Here, two sons were provided for, as opposed to one in the miracle that Elijah performed at Zarephath. In other words, in, in some respects, this is a, a, a greater, perhaps we could even say a, a double miracle, a double 1 Kings 17. And, and, yet, and yet, a prophet even greater than Elisha has come. Elisha redeemed this poor widow and her sons from slavery and debt and destitution, but one greater has come to deliver us from slavery to sin and death itself. In giving His blood, He prevented Satan from dragging us off into eternal exile. Does this remind you of something similar in the New Testament? Perhaps the story of, of Jesus and the miracle that He performed at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Do you remember what Jesus did there? The wedding feast had run out of wine and Jesus had servants collect large vessels and fill them with water. Jesus had them delivered to the wedding party and when they were poured out, the water became wine. It was a miracle done for a nameless family and performed in private outside of the large wedding party, but it was done for Jesus' disciples. At the close of that account in John chapter 2, verse 11, we read this. This, the first of His signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. See, that's part of the purpose of miracles, is to encourage and invite our faith in Jesus Christ. No one could help in that desperate situation, but God could help the helpless. God in Jesus Christ did help. Jesus proved that, that He was actually the bridegroom we were waiting for, the one to redeem us. Just as Elisha redeemed that widow and her sons from slavery. We need to grasp something of our own helplessness. And we need to grasp something of the help that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have redemption, salvation from a debt of sin that we could not pay. Our sins had mounted up to the heaven. Our debt had mounted up to the heavens. But the Lord Jesus Christ has come down. He has poured out His blood so that we might be rescued from the grasp of Satan and have eternal life. Which is our, leads to our next point. 
God. He's not only a God who helps the helpless, but He is a God who delivers from death. God delivers from death. This is our second point. Let's begin by reading uh, 2 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 8. We'll stop there in verse 17. Begin there in verse 8 of 2 Kings chapter 4. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. She said to her husband, Behold, now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shumanite. When he had called to her, she stood before him. And he said to him, Say to her, now say to her now, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. In these verses, we meet another woman. And at first, she appears far from helpless. Right? We're told that she was a wealthy woman. But wealth is not necessarily... A measure of one's need. Financially speaking, yes, she is at that moment in a different position than the woman of verses 1 to 7. But as we discover in these verses, she actually does have great need. Did you, did you spot it? She, she does have a husband and she does have a home that she can use to bless others, including Elisha. She, she has wealth. She can build an addition onto her home. She hospitably welcomes Elisha into her home, providing him with room and board. The fact that his room is something of an upper chamber reminds us of the room that Elijah had when he stayed with the woman of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. This woman, she's clearly a godly woman. She provides for a prophet, a minister on the move. And she fully recognizes that he, Elisha, is a man of God. In other words, she is supportive of the ministry. Just pause. What about us for a moment? What about us? Are we thinking about the resources that we have and thinking about how we can bless and further gospel ministry around us and around the world? Brothers and sisters, take some time to think about the resources that God has entrusted you with and, and think carefully and creatively about how you might be able to bless others and further gospel ministry. Anyway, Elisha, he recognizes that this woman is wonderfully supportive of his ministry and he engages her in a conversation that's mediated through his servant, Gehazi. 
Through Gehazi, Elisha expresses his gratitude and his own willingness to bless this woman. He, he offers to put in a word with the king or the commander of the army. How about that for like name dropping, right? Hey, you want me to talk to the king for you? He, he is ready to do anything necessary to bless this woman. He certainly has great influence. But, but did you notice the Shunammite's, Shunammite woman's modest reply? She says there at the end of verse 13, You know, I dwell among my own people. And in some, she's telling Elisha that she is content with what she has. She, uh, she doesn't announce her own need, though she has one. She waits. She trusts the Lord. She's content with God's providence. She's, she's content with where she lives and with the resources she has. How many of us could say the same? Right? How many of us could say that we're content with where we live? with the level of our income, with our job title, and with the the social awareness and prestige or lack thereof that we have, what if someone offered to put in a word for you with someone powerful in a position who could, you know, nudge you along a little bit? What if someone was basically guaranteeing a, a, a better and higher paying job with greater prestige. How many of us are content like this woman is content? It takes faith, doesn't it, to believe that what God has given us is not merely good, but best. It takes faith. It takes faith to live without grasping for what God has not given. Children, youth, young people, are you content with the skills and the talents that God has given you or not given to you? Are you content with the home and the room and the parents that the Lord has provided you with? Do your words and your prayers reflect contentment or discontentment? When was the last time you said thank you to the Lord? When was the last time you genuinely said thank you to your parents? Not like prompted, okay, now what do you say? Right? When when did you say thank you not out of habit, but out of heart full of gratitude? You know, the, the best way to fight discontentment is with gratitude. So if you you catch yourself wanting more catch yourself and ask yourself what what can I say thanks for what can I give thanks to God for and then do it thank the Lord for his wisdom in giving you the life and the gifts and the circumstances he's given to you this woman she expresses great contentment in God but Elisha he presses the conversation doesn't he He presses it further. This woman has done so much for him and it's almost as if he can't leave the conversation without finding a way to bless her. And it's at this point that Gehazi informs Elisha that she has no son and that her husband is old. Earlier I mentioned that she did not announce her own need but instead was content with God's providence. The fact that she has no son and her husband is old exposes a serious need. Though this woman is a woman of great wealth, 
now, when her husband dies, she will be destitute. For there's no heir to receive the property and possessions of her husband. She did announce, she didn't announce this need. She was trusting God for his future provision. And Elisha, he decides to inform her that God will indeed provide for her. Elisha informs this woman about about this time next year, she would embrace a son. Now, original readers, they, they would have picked up on what's going on here. These were the very words that Yahweh spoke to Abraham when he was too old. And how did the woman in Abraham's life respond? She responded with a good bit of disbelief. And I think that's maybe something of what we have here from this woman. She responded with laughter. Well, I think we should kind of read this woman's responses. Dear, dear Elisha, this promise, this is too good to be true. Don't, don't, don't play with me like that. But this, before we can really ponder this woman's reply too deeply, we see here that God, He, he brings life to a dead womb, doesn't He? This woman stands in a long line of women of faith whose wombs were barren and dead. And the words that Elisha speaks to her, coupled with the language of, but the woman conceived and she bore a son, it's the language used of the great women of faith in the Old Testament. It's the language used of Sarah in Genesis 18, of Rebekah in Genesis 25, of Rachel in Genesis 29 and 30, the wife of Manoah in Judges 13, of Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, and then... And then, when we get to the New Testament of Elizabeth and Luke 1, and even of Mary, the mother of our Lord, she was told that she would conceive and bear a son. What we have here, particularly in 2 Kings chapter 4, is God bringing life out of a previously dead womb. And this is the kind of God that we serve. A God who can work miracles great and small. And nothing is too small for him to do something great with. We saw that with that small jar of oil. He is a God who loves to bless his people to relieve their burdens and sorrows. And this woman would now have a son and he would deliver her from her destitution and certain death after her husband died. But the story, the story, it takes a tragic turn. Take a look at verses 18 to 20. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. The promised son, he began to grow and bring joy to his mother, but then something happened. Where this woman had previously been the recipient of a happy providence, of a pregnancy and of a son, she now receives a mysterious and frowning providence. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It is far easier for us to receive with faith and joy the Lord's gifts. The great difficulty is receiving with faith and joy the Lord's taking. Now, this woman's life is placed right back into jeopardy. She's back where she began. 
Her husband has no heir, and she, humanly speaking, has little hope. But, but think about the larger patterns of the book of Kings. What happened after Elijah performed that miracle with the jar in 1 Kings 17? Do you remember what happened after God, through Elijah, provided for that widow and her son? Well, the son died. And do you remember what happened next? Do you remember what Elijah did? He prayed the boy back to life. And what do you think is going to happen next? Yes, is Elisha, is he really the prophet who has taken on Elijah's mantle? Can he really do what Elijah did? Will he too raise this boy from the dead? Will this woman also receive back her dead? Let me just ask one more thing. As we begin to read the next set of verses, can I ask you to read them through the lens of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Our brother, Ryan Bulliard, is, is going to preach to us from this text this evening. And this is part of what that text says. It says, women receive back their dead by resurrection. And what the writer to the Hebrews is saying there is that by faith, women receive back their dead by resurrection. In other words, they believed and God returned their sons. He must have had the women of 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4 in mind. And, and as we read 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, verses 21 to 30, ask yourself, how is it that this woman is demonstrating faith? That should be a puzzle in our minds with the light of the New Testament. How is she demonstrating faith? How is she demonstrating faith in the God who is able to deliver from death? All right, now pick up reading in verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And she said, and he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet, and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord Yahweh lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, The child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in 
and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord, to Yahweh. Then he went up and laid on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon the child. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and, call, and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Well, this, this episode ought to remind us of the miraculous ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scripture passage that we read earlier in the service. Remember, in Luke 7, Jesus healed the son of the widow of Nain. Nain was actually not too far from Shunan, actually. And when Jesus healed the boy, the crowd recognized that he was a great prophet. Remember? They said, a great prophet is in our midst. God has visited us. When Jesus healed the boy, that's what the crowd said. And what Elisha does here is a, a prefiguring, a picturing of what Jesus did in name. And ultimately, what he will do on the last day. Like 1 Kings 17 and the story of the woman of Zarephath, the dead boy is laid on the bed of the prophet. And then she calls to her husband. She asks him, she asks him to send her to Elisha, the, the, the man of God, right? And that's the same phrase that's used of Elijah. And he's where? He's at Mount Carmel, the same place where Elijah performed much of his miraculous ministry. And, and this request for, for her to send him to Elisha catches her husband by surprise, right? It, it's not ordinarily the time for this kind of spiritual journey. Right? Because she's a godly woman, uh, he, he's used to her traveling for the Israelite celebrations on the, on the new moon. That's pretty normal. Because she's a godly woman, he's used to her traveling to gather with God's people in preparation for the Sabbath. That's normal. So why are you going now? Is kind of his question. And she assures him with a, all is well. She, she literally says, all is shalom. Right? All is at peace. What? Right? How, how could she say that? How could she leave out the terrible news that her son is dead? How could she say all is well? All is not well. Everything is not at peace. Her son is dead. I wonder, do you see this woman's faith here? Do you see her faith here? The only way that she could say that all is well is if she is trusting in the sovereign God who rules over life and death who is able to deliver from death. Do you see what she's doing? She's, she's not preparing for the burial of her son. She's not calling for the mourners to come and to wail at her door. She's not requesting a burial shroud. She is going to bring her burden to the one she believes can do something about it. She believes in the God who is able to raise the dead. And though she has no guarantee, that he will raise her son from the dead. She has faith and hope that he will. And so she goes to God's servant. Without delay, 
she gets on the road, she meets Elijah's, Elisha's servant Gehazi, and it's clear she's not really interested in speaking with Gehazi. He asks these series of questions, and yeah, all is well, I'm headed to Elisha, right? She wants to get to the man who can do something about her dead son. The man who took up the ministry of the prophet Elijah, who raised a boy back to life. And as with her husband, she tells Gehazi, all is well, I'm going to keep moving on. And she comes to Elisha. Let us learn this lesson from this woman. We must go to the one who can do something about our trials and our troubles. Yes, we can and should share our burdens with brothers and sisters in Christ. We can and should share our burdens with pastors and Christian friends. But we must also, and maybe even first, take our burdens and sorrows to the Lord. To the one who can do something about our troubles and trials. Elisha is Yahweh's representative on earth. And this woman knows it. She knows he's a man of God. She knows he can do something about her troubles. And when she finally arrives in Elisha's presence, she desperately grabs his feet and reminds him of her previous words. She didn't ask for this. This blessing, this gift has become a burden now. She didn't ask for this gift from God. She's confused by God's providence. How many of us can understand what's going on in the heart of this poor mother? Have you ever been confused by how God takes a blessing and somehow He turns it into a burden? It seems. Have you ever been confused by that? And with this sobering expression of grief, the picture, it's now as plain as day to Elisha. Now he knows that this woman, she's lost her son. He sends Gehazi with his staff to lay it across the face of the boy. But then she speaks again. This woman speaks again. And this time, did you notice what she utters? She utters the words that Elisha himself has uttered before. Elisha spoke the words that she spoke. She says there in verse 30, As the Lord, Yahweh, lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. That's what Elisha said to Elijah when he was getting ready to leave. As we reflected last week, this is an expression of of Ruth-like faith and commitment. Like Jacob clinging to the angel of the Lord, saying, I'm not going to leave you until you bless me. That's what this woman is saying. She is not going to leave Elisha's side until he blesses her. And Gehazi returns, having completed his mission, and he informs Elisha that the child is not returned from death. Elisha returns to the home and he begins what? He begins his prayer ministry over the boy. Elisha, he he enters into the uncleanness of death by touching this boy, stretching himself across the boy, right? According to the law of Moses, you touch a dead body, you're unclean. Unclean people can't go to the Lord. But something's happening here with Elisha, isn't it? Do you realize that this is what must happen if God is going to deliver someone from death and give them life? Someone must enter into our uncleanness, take it upon himself if we are to be saved from death. 
Elisha takes the uncleanness of death upon himself and prays that the Lord would give this boy life. And after a period of prayer, the flesh of the child became warmth, warmth, but no breath of life. Elisha got up, he walked around. Sometimes you need to walk around while you're praying, just to be clear. You need to revitalize yourself. Pray, get up, walk around, and pray some more. It's hugely helpful. I commend it to you. He gets up, he walks around, he stretches himself across the boy again. Though a symbol of the prophet's power, the, the impersonal rod could not raise the boy. It was the personal prayer ministry of Elisha. The personal taking the uncleanness of the boy's death upon himself. The personal breathing over him. Breathing upon him. The personal prayer over him is what Yahweh used to bring this boy back to life. It's virtually impossible to say what the significance of the seven sneezes are. Except to completely confirm that the breath of life has come back into him and out of him. Breath had returned to the boy. And don't miss how this narrative concludes. Elisha, he calls the Shunammite woman and he instructs her to pick up her son. But is that what she does? Did you see what she does first? Stick your nose in the text. What does she do in verse 37? She obediently comes, she falls at his feet and bows to the ground. Before going to her son, she goes to the one who has mediated God's power. She goes to the one who has represented God to her. And in expression of worship and thanks, not to Elisha, but to Yahweh, she falls at his feet and bows to the ground. She no doubt wants to embrace her son. But before she can receive this gift back from God, she has to give thanks to God. She must praise God. The God whom she has placed her faith in has proved himself faithful. He is the God who is able to deliver from death. Friends, brothers and sisters, do you, do you believe this about God? Do you believe that God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, took on flesh, entered into this sin-stained world, and took the uncleanness of our sin and death upon himself for us, and for our salvation. Though He was the perfect man of God, the perfect sinless Son of God, on the cross He voluntarily took our guilt, our sin, our shame, our uncleanness, our punishment, and ultimately our death. It was the only way He could give us life. And three days after His death on the cross, three days after He took our uncleanness into the grave and buried it there. He got up from the dead. God the Father proved to us that Jesus is able to deliver us from death by returning breath to His lungs. In the words of one poet, He took one breath and put death to death. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want to exhort you to turn from your sins and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can deliver us from eternal death. And because He is the only one who has come back from the dead, that's why He's the only one who can deliver us from eternal death. He's the only one to come back from dead, the dead and never die again. 
That's the difference between Jesus and the boys of 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings chapter 4. All of the people that Jesus raised from the dead in the gospel too, they all died. Their resurrections were temporary. But when Jesus himself was raised from the dead, he was raised in a glorified body and is now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. On the last day, he will raise the dead from the grave. And all those who have trusted in him will have eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. In a world where there will be no more decay, no more disease, no more death, but only delight in the eternal God. So friend, come to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today. We should conclude. From 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 to 37, we have seen how Elisha continues to display that he is the rightful heir to Elijah's ministry. He has the same miraculous power. And through his ministry, we see two important things. First, we see that our God helps the helpless and that he's able to deliver from death. Our God is able to identify and meet our greatest needs. Second, in Elisha's ministry, we also see glimpses of the miraculous ministry of Jesus Christ. Yes, Elisha's ministry points us back to Elijah, but it also points us forward to the miraculous ministry of Jesus. Remember, he too filled jars. He too raised, bo raised boys from the grave. He too helped the helpless, and he too delivered from death. But above all, these stories remind us of Jesus' cross work and resurrection from the dead. Like the widow's oil, Jesus' blood was poured out, and it was enough. It was enough to pay the price to set us free from sin and slavery and death. And like the boy's resurrection, Jesus was also raised to life so that we too might be delivered from eternal death. That is what we need. That is what we really need. And by God's grace, Jesus has met our need. And we rejoice in Him now. Let's pray together.